Welcome to the Retreat House Podcast, where we gather at the table to hear each other's stories. I'm your host, Angie Smith, and I am so glad that you're here. Please pull up a chair and join us. Welcome to the Retreat House Table. This is kind of an exciting episode because it's the first time that I don't actually have someone at the table, they're at the virtual table. We are going to be doing this through Skype, which is super exciting and a little terrifying because I'm having to do the technology. Um, But so today on the show, I have my friend, Justine Pucker. Welcome to the show, Justine. (laughs) Thank you for being here. Thank you. I just wanted to introduce you so you can kind of pipe in as I'm saying this. Yeah. Yeah. So we ended up, we were roommates. We became roommates. And yeah, we were, we were friends first. Well, I we think we friends. knew each other. Yeah, but then, yeah. But then my so roommate moved out and you moved in. Yeah, in yeah. my senior year of college, with, yeah. you guys were already done with school, the other, the three of you ladies, yeah. right? Yep. And, and when I, I shared the room. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, 10. <laughs> Which is interesting. I remember doilies, although I know there were no doilies present. <laughs> you are not a doily there person. There were no doilies. <laughs> There were no doilies. I can assure you of that. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah. Yes. And we became neighbors. We became neighbors. Yeah. I lived in those apartments named after flowers, and then you lived in a fancier yeah. apartment complex because you guys, you know, were graduated and had money. <laughs> yeah. With the cesspool. We had the cesspool behind us. Oh, yeah. I remember that. <laughs> that pond. <laughs> yeah. Good old Minnesota. Yeah. So, yes. So Justine and I met when we were students at Northwestern and yeah, have become friends since then. We're neighbors and just kind of forged a really honest friendship, a friendship where we can be just really open and honest with each other, which I've always appreciated. And I so Justine now is now. um, Why don't you tell us about what you're doing now? You're working for your church. Yes. Yeah. So I'm um, I'm on staff with our church. I oversee our family discipleship. I do that very part time because full time I'm at home with my littles and um, homeschooling my son. Oh, nice. Oh, I didn't know that you were homeschooling. Yeah, yeah we started this year. And you live in the Chicago area. We live in Chicago, in the yeah. city. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Yeah. So, and I invited Justine to come on to the show today to share her story with grief and loss. And uh, you have a blog about it, Windy Girl in the City. Windy um, Girl? in the Windy City. I haven't contributed to it for a few years because of been some distraction. <laughs> right, exactly. But, but yes. I appreciated the way that you wrote as you were experiencing your loss and grief. You are very, very honest and raw about it, which I always appreciated and yeah and then when I asked you if you wanted to come and talk about grief you were like yes I love talking about grief I love talking about grief where do you think is the best kind of the best place to start telling your story I think it's at the the start of my journey with grief that I didn't know was going to be such a long one so I I know the exact date it was November 11th of of 2009 I just prior to that had found out I was pregnant and just like a week into that I had had a miscarriage and it was a kind of a traumatic experience because I was at somebody else's home that I didn't even know I happened to be just babysitting their kids and um, 
I miscarried at their at their home. It was awful. That um, is awful. Yeah, it was it was hard because I didn't know what to to do. Right. I remember you were talking about like the whole um, when you were sharing your experience with your your one of your miscarriages, you know, about flushing this baby down the toilet, like you know, yeah. and how that was for you. And I just freaked out. I didn't know what to do, right. and and I that's what I did. Um, but anyways, I I went to the midwives and they confirmed that I indeed had a miscarriage, mm-hmm. and that was my introduction into this extensive club that, you know, I didn't know existed. I mean, obviously I knew people had miscarriages, but prior to my own, it was not anything that really impacted me. I mean, my mom had had one. I knew about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So November 11th of 2009 was, um, my first miscarriage. Um, but you know, you, when you have your first miscarriage, everybody's just like, well, it's just, you know, a fluke. Some people say it's a fluke mm-hmm. or it's normal and you're going to be fine. It's not uncommon. Not uncommon. Right. right. All of that stuff. And every, you know, people come out of the woodwork, right? A miscarriage too. And they tell their story. And that was one thing that baffled me was a lot of people who were older would say like, you know, I had a miscarriage and they never talked about it. Right. Um, I think like our parents' generation, they mm-hmm. just, they did it. My mom shared that. She's like, it's just not something you talked about. Nobody asked you about it. It wasn't seen as a loss of life. Right. It was just like a medical mishap Mm -hmm. which I never experienced it that way but um so anyways I I got pregnant again and um that was in the spring and I remember we went to the midwives on good Friday and we saw the baby's heartbeat Mm. and I think nine or ten weeks and so obviously that was super exciting after the trauma of that miscarriage and then on Easter Sunday I miscarried that baby and that was I don't know I remember reflecting on that I was like that felt like such a ironic thing like on good friday the death of jesus i right. saw the life of my baby and then on the day that he rose i even saw the the passing of of my second baby mm-hmm. um so that felt like a slap in the face mm-hmm. if you will especially after having seen a heartbeat and you get this what i would have said at the time was a false sense of hope mm-hmm. i don't see it that way now um but i felt like that's what i was given it was like false hope um, and you named your babies. I did. You know, I, I named, I named, yeah, our first one, Jack. Second one was Claire. Um, I have no way of knowing for sure if boys they were girls. boys or girls. Mm-hmm. It was something like that just felt impressed upon me. Yeah. And then after that second miscarriage, that's, I think, when I just, I just started negotiating with God. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I kept asking, like, what do I need to do to, to show you that I'm like, to prove that I'm worthy of getting to be a mom and, and really trying to question like, why does so-and-so get to be a mom Mm -hmm. or why does so-and-so get to have their third baby now? And, or somebody having their fifth baby and they didn't even want to have five. It was unplanned or whatever. Exactly. Yes, Mm -hmm. exactly. And it was, it's kind of a torturous place to be because you ask those questions, but there's no answers to that. I mean, there, there are none that time was tumultuous. Um, I did end up getting pregnant again in the fall of 2010. And then I lost that baby as, as well. So you lost three within a year. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Three and one. Yes, that's right. Three in one year. Mm-hmm. And then, then <laughs> you were sharing in your podcast, like the different stages of grief. So mine started with negotiating <laughs> um, or what is it? Bargaining. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
And then I went right into like, you know, just shame, like shame about my body. Mm -hmm. Like, What's going on with my body? Like, what's so wrong about my body that it can't just do this thing that so many people make it look so easy? Right. Well, and Um, I think as a woman, too, at least for me, and you can speak to whether or not this was your experience, that it felt like my identity as a woman is what was under attack. Like my function, like that was supposed to be my function as a woman was to go and yeah. multiply <laughs> and I could not for the life of me multiply. Yeah. Yes. No, that I totally resonate with that. And maybe you resonate with this too. Like that's when I started feeling like I'm like failing Jason, my husband, mm. like I'm not depriving him cause I wasn't intentionally doing it, but I was, he was missing out on something that I couldn't give him. And, and thinking about like, well, I guess too bad he didn't marry somebody else. Like mm. he stuck with me like barren, mm me Mm -hmm. so that was that was yeah that was shame and then I then I was starting to get angry because you know prior the first two miscarriages wasn't angry like I wasn't angry with God um you know the negotiating and and all that like trying to figure out like why he he wasn't giving us a baby was more like it was like a mystery to be solved it was like what do I need to do and then I'll just do it right but after that third one like I I I started feeling really angry really starting to question his goodness Mm. and Mm-hmm. just yeah how he says he has a he works for the good of those that love him and I, just, I don't I don't know I'm not that's what? that doesn't me yeah <laughs> right. that's not been my experience and you know after you have your third miscarriage in the medical world that's when they start to have you undergo testing um I've always had a fear I would say of just all things medical. Mm-hmm. I always get that white coat. Is it white coat syndrome? Yeah. Where like when you see a white coat, your blood pressure goes up. Every right. time I Anxiety. go to the doctor, I'm like, take the blood pressure after we've talked because it's going to be like 200 over 50,000 <laughs> right. because they don't want to be here. Um, so that was hard. That, like that was another thing that made me angry. Is like I'm terrified of this kind of stuff, and now I have to like subject myself to this these tests and you're always wondering what's going to come back. And you remember there was one test they wanted me to do. It's called the HSG. I don't remember what that stands oh. for. They have to go in and put oh, dye. Yes. I rem- yeah. I don't know what it, yeah. I remember that test. So yes. I made the appointment for that and I, I showed up and I remember they brought me into the procedure room and laid me on like, it was like a slab table. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember looking over and there was this glass, panel or panels with the doctor and three people or something like that behind it and I just got up and I left and the, I was like in my gown and those socks that they give you and mm-hmm. I was looking for the locker room so I could go back and change and the nurse chased me down she's like what are you what are you doing like we're all here for you You're like the doctor is like here to do this procedure I'm like this is I this is not for me like I I have my limits and what I'm willing to subject my body to and mm-hmm. I'm not doing this and I remember walking out to the waiting room and Jason was there and he looked up and was like surprised. I'm like, no, I didn't do it. And that's something, that's when I really saw the character of my husband, like how he entered into the space with me because he didn't, he could have easily been like, Justine, what are you doing? Like, this is our chance. Like find out for something yeah, go wrong. Go back in and, there. Yeah. But he never did. He just, he trusted my decision. And, you know, I think that's that's a part of grief that people don't talk about is the struggle that a husband and wife can have, mm-hmm. especially around the topic of infertility. As the woman, as the person who's going through it physically and, and maybe feeling things a little bit more emotionally, we, we it's easy for us to look at our husband and say, you're not sad enough. Like, you're not entering into this enough mm-hmm. to me. And 
I totally had that time, those times with, with Jason. Mm -hmm. But I have to say overall, the way that he loved me and allowed me to experience my grief and, and showed me how he was experiencing it himself, like, was just a really sweet thing for us. You know, the divorce rate for people who go through infertility is outstanding. I think it's in the 80 percentile or something. Mm -hmm. We never, we just, we never had a, that rocky time. Like, we might have had, like, a couple of rocky nights mm -hmm. where you know, I was, like, having a fit about something, but... Anyways, I just that, that that was something that re I remember that, and I just thought that's that's a good man that mm -hmm. my God, you know, that God gave me. <laughs> he, he just went okay. with it. Yeah. Um, I remember anyways, Todd being really hopeful, like just always, always assuming that we were going to get pregnant. The best. Yes. Yeah, like it was just going to happen, and I, <clears throat> which I totally did not get. <laughs> like, yeah. where this faith and hope were coming from. Oh yeah, the, Jason was the same way, Angie. He just yeah, he had so much hope, and mm -hmm. thank God for that. I feel like I got to where I am today, writing on the hopes and prayers of other people mm -hmm. because I didn't have it in me. At some point, it just left. But after that time, I was still hopeful, and I was still you know mentally like in the game. And so that was in the fall of 2011, and then that winter I got pregnant again, and then I lost that baby. That that's one of the miscarriages that's kind of foggy to me actually. I was trying like as I was thinking about talking to you today, I was trying to remember more about it and I actually really don't I don't really have a lot about it to say, mm -hmm. sadly enough. But then I got pregnant that summer, um, in twenty eleven and and I lost that baby. So that's five. Now we're on So that's my fifth five. miscarriage. Yeah, in about two and a half years. And at that time I went and saw um you know, I living in the city, especially in Chicago, I have access to, you know, some amazing doctors. And it just so happened that the country's leading expert on mis like, uh, recurrent miscarriages worked at a hospital here in the city. And I got an oh. appointment with her um, in a relatively short amount of time. And I met with her and she ran all her crazy tests. Everything came back fine. And I remember meeting with her for the last time. And she said, you know, Justine, I, you're going to have a baby. It just, it's just a matter of how long you can stay in this game, like mentally and emotionally, because I, you might just keep having, you know, you, you could have a few more losses yet. And mm -hmm. there's just no way of knowing like what's wrong with your body or how to tweak it. And so there's and for, just nothing medically wrong, like, or physiologically. No, wow. Nothing. And I, I can tell you, we, we, the, the amount of tests that we went through was exhaustive. And mm -hmm. Jason went through a lot of the same battery of tests just to make sure there was nothing that he was contributing to the right. equation that was <laughs> throwing things off. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, we, we, we walked away relieved, but then at the same time frustrated because right. there, there were no answers. And I remember a friend going in for a test and she came, they friend, the results came back and, and there was something wrong. They were able to find it and they were able to fix it. And I was like, so envious, mm -hmm. you know, like, oh, you had something wrong with you and you got to fix it. Like just, yeah. But I think, you know, I, 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 I think that part of my story too just heightens the the need for trust I need to have in the Lord because I ultimately my body wasn't a mystery to Him, right? right? He He's the one who made together. It. Yeah, and and He knew what He was doing, and I don't know. There's kind of a sweetness in there was a sweetness in doctors coming back like I don't know what to tell you mm -hmm. and, and getting in a cab and resting in, yeah, they don't know what to tell me, but like, I know what God says and, um, God knows who I am. Like he, he has intricately made me. He knows everything about me. 
Um, and I'll just rest in that. It doesn't mean that I get a baby out of it, mm-hmm. but he knows me. You know, I, I just, yeah. and I thought, you know, often at that stage too, I was thinking a lot about the women that I knew in the infertility world who didn't know the Lord and the the hopelessness that was, that they faced, the idea that they might not get to have a baby. And I'm not saying that I didn't feel hopelessness, because I did, but gosh, that so quickly, like, got washed over with mm-hmm. just knowing like God, he sees me and he knows me and he knows this desire I have. And, and I really believed Angie that like, I really believed that he would satisfy my desire, but I never for one minute thought for sure it was going to be with a baby. I knew mm-hmm. like he knew this desire and if he wasn't going to give us a baby, he was going to put a different desire mm-hmm. in our hearts and it was going to be even more amazing than desiring to be parents. And, and, and I couldn't even fathom what that was, but like I trusted him enough to, to believe that mm-hmm. I had to, I mean, it was the hope that I clung to, right. you know, at the time. but after my fifth miscarriage, I, I took a sabbatical. The, the elders at church were gracious to, to give me, I feel like if I remember correctly, an indefinite amount of time to take off just to leave. Mm-hmm. And I, I took a sabbatical from life, if you will. I mean, I withdrew from things that I was doing socially. And and I wasn't doing, like, to be a hermit. I was doing it because I, I really, at that point, like, I needed to step back. I mean, physically, I was depleted. I was going to acupuncture, like, once a week and taking all these Chinese tinctures because I was just, I was really depleted um, physically. All the, the tests were coming back, like, <laughs> this body needs to, like, rest. Right. But emotionally and spiritually, I just, I'm starting to feel like a shell of myself. Mm-hmm. And I feel like my, my friendships were suffering. I just didn't know how to be in relationship with women um, who were having babies. Mm-hmm. You know, that's another part of grief that I think we don't talk about, like, is how it can, it, it affects friendships. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not that you're, at least for me, it wasn't that I wasn't happy for them. I was happy for them. But it just made me more sad for myself, like like it increased my my own sadness. Yes, that's exactly what I would tell people. I'm I'm happy for you. I'm just more sad for me. Yeah. And you know, it, you say that, and it's like, gosh, that sounds so like wildly selfish. Like it just sounds awful. But I don't know. I think at some point, like, it's just it's just the reality of what right. it is, and you can't yep. apologize for it. Mm-hmm. You know. I stopped going to baby showers. I just couldn't. Last one I went to was sitting in the corner of it crying while she's opening presents. Like, nobody wants me around. It's crazy. I'm going to take a cupcake and leave. (laughs) Maybe Um, two. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) So that time is really sweet to me. And I think that, and again, I don't remember how long that was. To me, it felt like it was a year, but it was definitely not that long. It was the precipice, I think, for the vast amount of learning that I did in my grief. I would, my husband would leave for, for work for the day and, and I have the whole day ahead of me and I had nothing planned and really wasn't, you know, into seeing people or anything like that. And mm-hmm. I'd walk in the city and just, you know, I do things like that. But a lot of times I'd sit on my couch in my living room and I would picture like a wrestling mat, you know, on, on the floor of my living room and. And, and I would just say like, all right, I'm going to go to the mats with God and the stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm going to talk, I'm going to ask him the stuff that might sound like I have doubts that might sound like I'm ready to turn my back on him. I'm going to say the things that I need to say and we're going to work it out. And I, you know, I remember before I started that, that season, 
just being afraid that I was going to end up in this black hole and never get out. Right. And I just, I asked people, to, I asked people to pray against that. And I specifically prayed. I was like, Lord, I, I want to like, I want to go to the depths. <laughs> I do, but I'm so afraid that I won't get out. And mm-hmm. I'm so afraid that the outcome is going to be like a bitter shaking her fist at you, Justine. And I didn't want that, you know, mm-hmm. it would have been easier in some ways to be that way, but I, it's not the legacy that I wanted. I didn't want to be bitter. So I really felt like he, I feel like he really met me in that time. Like he blessed my um, obedience to to go to the mats with mm-hmm. him, if you will. And there was this um, quote that I found by Charles Spurgeon. It's uh, they who dive in the sea of affliction bring up rare pearls. I was like, that's mm-hmm. what I want to do. Like I want to dive deep um, into those dark waters, and I want to bring up like something beautiful and precious, like a treasure. And in that time, like I felt like there was like seven truths that he, he gave me that eventually I was able to, to turn into um, a talk that I gave at a women's retreat. And, and then I, I published them on my, my blog posts just that, you know, he gives he, and he takes away and like, you know, blessed be his name. And the, I've always loved the book of Job. I'm, I'm totally a melancholy person <laughs> just meant to accept that. I like gray, rainy days. I love the mm-hmm. color black. I like sad movies and I love the book of Job. And, you know, <laughs> I just developed a, like a, a deeper appreciation for it. Once I felt like I could relate to him a little bit. I mean, he, you know, here he like, like lost everything he owns. He lost all his kids. He lost the respect of his wife. He found out his friends had like terrible theology. Mm-hmm. And, and what does he do? Like he worships God in, in, in history yeah, in the midst of it instead of it like in it and that just felt like a model for me of like that's what I want to do I just want to come before my lord and just lay it all out and but still my heart was like longing to worship him and every time I had a miscarriage every time the first thing that I yearned for was to be in community with the people at my church and just worshiping I just mm. needed that like I needed to hear their voices cuz more often than not I wasn't the one who could sing mm-hmm. But I needed to hear those truths like pouring out over me, you know, to be I mean, worship is us coming to him like so it's like being taken to his throne room, even if you're not participating in the singing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that after my mom died, I remember being in a worship service and just losing it, which is absolutely my favorite thing to do in public is to totally emotionally (laughs) lose it. Not really. And I remember standing <laughs> I remember standing next to Todd in church and like just kind of like almost falling into him because uh-huh. like the Lord, like being in the presence, maybe that's what it is, just being in his presence mm-hmm. when you're so broken and mm-hmm. you have no words. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And yeah, just his love, like just washing over you mm-hmm. through the the voices of praise of other people. It's, it's just, it's beautiful. Worship is so powerful. It, it is. is. It's just beautiful. Mm-hmm. But that was, you know, that was one of the truths that he gives and he takes away. And one of them was he's sovereign over, over all things. I don't remember after which miscarriage, but I, I remember I was uh, talking to my counselor and um, I just said it. I was like, I just, I gotta tell you, like, I, I just, I think that somewhere in all of this, like I, God just lost control of what's going on. Like he doesn't have, like dominion over my body like there's just 
something crazy is going on and I've, I've fallen out of his hand. And I really felt that way. I didn't say it to people because again, I didn't want anybody to doubt, like to, to think that I was falling away from Christianity or anything like that. Well, that's I part of the shame. I mean, too. wouldn't you say that goes along with the shame that you were feeling? Yes. Yes, it absolutely does. Especially if, if people have not walked through something like that. It doesn't have to be infertility, mm-hmm. but something that rocks their world so much that it you ask the big questions. Yeah, that shakes the foundation of everything. Like then it's hard to understand that and it's easy to write it off as, Well, shame on you for being so doubtful. Mm-hmm. You know, and I don't know. I I well I I it's just a part of the process and it's a necessary part of the process. I think you have to ask those questions to get on the other side of things. So and I, I remember Roger saying, like, my counselor, like, no, he's he's over that. Like he's he is sovereign over that. And that was, I just pressed into that word. He is like sovereign over all things, even my losses. Mm-hmm. He is, he is sovereign in that. Well, how are you balancing? He is sovereign and he is good. He's sovereign over your losses and he's still good. That's where I've been, you know, I really thought that I had dealt with this with losing my mom, but that's kind of what's been stirred up lately. Judy Haugen was on the podcast a few weeks ago and she talked about that my loss skewed my vision of God, which I, that yes, that, and I, I have been wrestling with that ever since then. And not, I mean, dealing with it on different levels, but now I feel like I'm going to a deeper level with him with it. And it's wrapped around his goodness. You know, he could, he could have healed her, but he didn't. He is sovereign and he's good. (laughs) trying to reconcile that yeah we we won't fully be able to right and I think that's where it's just that trust that you put in him of you know we don't know what's around the bend Mm -hmm. um I mean I think about like how God has used the death of your mother I I think in ways that have made you so tender Mm -hmm. and you could speak more to it because you you're you (laughs) it's your journey (laughs) but I would say from afar, I have seen, you know, I've seen like a shift. I've seen this great tenderness and this thirst for the Lord. Now, was your mother's death the the instigator of that? You know, I, I don't know. But well, I feel like I, I can really resonate with you talking about really questioning God and really questioning. I'm not sure I can still do this with you, Lord. I'm not sure this is really what I signed up for. Mm-hmm. And and asking those hard questions with your knees knocking because mm-hmm. you're so scared because mm-hmm. that's like where all your hope lies. You've put mm-hmm. all, all the faith and trust mm-hmm. there. And then, yeah, trying to wrestle with, is he who he says he is when it doesn't, when that's not your experience, you know, it's true, but your current experience isn't really <laughs> backing that up. As right. And, well, and I think that speaks to another one of those truths that he showed me was that he is, you know, unchanging, mm-hmm. that that our circumstances change all the time. Mm-hmm. He is unchanging in my joy and in my grief, in my abundance and in my, what I would perceive as, as lack, a lacking or a wanting, that he is unchanging. Nothing about him is swayed or um, moved. Right. Um, and... I don't know. I, I, again, I, 
this grief thing has been such an odd friend. Right. <laughs> I think you call it a companion. companion. Mm-hmm. I love that word. It sounds actually more intimate, and it, I think that is more accurate of what grief is. But it's not one I ever would have picked out of a, a crowd <laughs> to hang out with. But gosh, am I glad for it because it has deepened my understanding of who God is and who he says he is and who I am in him. And mm-hmm. I feel like I'm stronger in my faith because of my losses. Right. And I, you know, would I have rather have done a different way? Well, yeah, mm-hmm. but then I don't know what way would that have been? The, the loss of my husband. I, I don't, I don't know what it would have been. And so what other I'll, kind of suffering. I'll, yeah. I'll take, I'll take what he gives me because I believe in his goodness and I trust that he will do all the things that he says he is and he will, making beauty out of ashes, which I've seen over and over again. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, I want, I just, I, I don't question like why he does things. I went through that season and, and I, and he satisfied those questions. Now, I don't think I'm not naive enough to think that if something were to happen again, like, you know, like if something happened to one of my children, I can imagine that I might go through that. But I feel so rock solid in my belief that he is he is always working for our good and we can never fully understand his ways. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, that's not a lot of comfort for somebody who's maybe going through grief right now and is asking a lot of questions, but I hope it's an assurance of knowing that you can know that your father in heaven is always working for your good and you don't know what's around the bend. No. You, you don't. No, I'm just, I'm glad I don't. Right. Yeah, exactly. Glad I don't. Well, and what was comforting for me was that he was always with me, that I knew that he wasn't going to leave me. I, I wasn't walking through it alone. I was oh. walking through it. I mean, like what you were talking about, about God knowing every intricate part of your physiological body, but that he also knows every intricate part of our soul and our being and can walk with us in ways that and minister to us in ways that other people, God bless them, you know, like our husbands try, but just can't. Right. Can't do that. So you have this time of sabbatical and then was it during that time that you got pregnant for the sixth time? Um, yeah. So, well, sometime after that, I got pregnant in this, uh, the spring of 2012. So I, we took a whole year off okay. of, um, of getting pregnant. Um, I just needed it. I needed a break. I wasn't even convinced that I was, um, necessarily wanting to get pregnant again. Um, and actually we, we visited a couple of adoption agencies cause it looked like that was the path we were heading down. But I was, I, I did that kicking and screaming. I, I just, I, it's funny, you know, I always loved the idea of adoption. And then when it was became, was looking like it was going to become our only option, it suddenly became something that was not appealing. I was, I was mad that we were in that place just to be completely honest about that. <laughs> But anyway, yeah, so I, I did get pregnant again um, after taking off a year, and that was really great. Like, th- there was so much hope, I think, like, across the board with, like, the midwife and certainly with us and the couple of other, like, Eastern integrative dark doctors that I was mm-hmm. working with. There's just a lot of hope. Like, everything was moving in the right direction. But, you know, I can see now how he used that year that I took off 
to prepare me for the loss of that sixth baby. So we, we lost that baby. We went, um, you know, I, if I remember correctly, I think it was around nine weeks, I think, or something that we found out we lost that baby. Okay. And I remember coming home and, and just walking into the house and thinking like when we left, there was so much, um, hope mm-hmm. and light mm-hmm. spring and, and then coming home and everything felt so like dark and sullen and just awful. I felt, I felt sad, but more than that, I just felt like lost. Yeah. Like, what now? Like, what do we do now? Where do you, where do you go from here after you've lost six babies? Right. And, and nobody could answer that question. Right. There was nothing to like fix. Right. Nobody can tell you there's anything wrong. Right. It's just, yeah. And, you know, at that point, too, it became less about having a baby and more about, like, tasting and and seeing who God is. Mm-hmm. And I think that, like, hit on, too, like, part of the reason why I was on this journey. I I think that God had a lot that he wanted to show me. And, and, and he did, mm-hmm. he showed up over and over again. But I, I think about how, had I not been on this journey, like I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have experienced him the ways that I have. Had I just gotten pregnant and had a baby right away, I probably would have been like, okay, when's the next baby? And then when's the next one? And then when do I get a minivan? And you know, just mm-hmm. thinking about those things and my circumstances didn't allow for that. So I spent about three and a half to four years pondering who God is and, and where do I fit into that? And so I'm really thankful for that. Like that losing that sixth baby was a blow. I I won't deny that it wasn't, but it was for me, it was a reaffirmation of the work that God did in my heart, that the work that we had done together over that last year, that, 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 that year is the year, like that year of 2011 was like the year that I feel like I learned how to dance in the Valley, Mm. learned how to, to be so low, but yet to to feel so buoyed by by God, so lifted up by Him, yeah. So that was that was in the spring of 2012, and then after that, I I just declared it. I was like, Jason, I'm done. I just I can't do it anymore. I'm maxed out. It's pointless, you know, just to keep doing this. And and he still had hope, you know. He he had so much hope, and I sat with that for a while and I just decided like if he still has hope who am who am I even though it's my body and if it's my body that would have to go through the loss again like who am I to say sorry too bad you have hope I'm not doing it anymore like mm-hmm. I just I couldn't do that to him <clears throat> and um so we got pregnant again um in the first part of 2013 and so that was my seventh pregnancy and we went really early I remember I went really early to the midwife to check for a heartbeat. For some reason, Jason couldn't be with me for that. So I took a friend because I couldn't even drive myself to the office downtown. I was just a ball of nerves. Right. Um, and they put me in with like a technician. Like they even just, they just like, let's just get you in with like somebody who's really good at doing this right away. You know, midwives aren't trained in those ultrasound things. Mm-hmm. And I remember just being there and she just didn't find anything. And I was just like, getting ready to go out of my mind. Like, you've got to be kidding me. We're, this is seven times. 
And then she's like, I found a heartbeat. Found a heartbeat. And everything just shifted. Mm-hmm. Because it seemed like, yeah, like this veil had been removed. And, and finally, like, there was life, you know. Mm-hmm. I'd never seen, like, life on the screen except for that one time. And so the to fast forward, I, I, I carried that baby to term. Um, mm-hmm. That was my son. He, he was born perfect and healthy, and I'll never forget the experience of delivering him. It was every bit as redeeming as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, it would have been after so many losses. I remember crying, as I'm sure every woman does, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was crying, obviously, for the joy, like for the joy of my son, for the joy of being done with labor and delivery. <laughs> um, but there was a there was an awareness um, inside of me of like just crying for the way that God like ushered us through Mm. the, I call it those morning years and how sweet and tender he was to us. And then this good gift he gave us. And I remember at one point, like looking at my husband and, and thinking like it was because of his hope, like Mm. he had hope. And that like carried us in so many ways and how thankful I was for that. So yeah, that was incredible. Um, and prior to, just prior to my son being born, I um, started, my husband and I started this project called the the baby bird project. And that was born out of um, a friend after I had my second miscarriage, sent me these two birds mm-hmm. to, to hang in my home. And I was just so moved by that. I was so moved that somebody would enter into my grief who was, you know, at the time she lived in a different state. She had two kids of her own. She's never had any experience with loss of, you know, miscarriages. Mm -hmm. And she thought to send those to me. And it just, it meant something to me. And so um, we decided that, like, you know, just as a way to keep remembering, like, the, the work that God had done in our lives through that season of four years that we wanted to, to minister to other people. So we now ship our little birds. Um, all, I just, all over the country and I just did my first international <laughs> a couple months ago and, and then also use our site as a way like to educate people who are maybe walking alongside of somebody who's mm-hmm. experienced a mis- miscarriage or stillbirth and we're just not sure how to interact with it. You know, we, mm-hmm. we, Thank you for what you said in the beginning about appreciating being my being raw and transparent about my grief. You know, it's the only way I know how to be, to be honest. (laughs) Um, But I had found that there were some people who didn't appreciate that, that they were offended by it. Mm -hmm. They were certainly very uncomfortable with it. And I just felt like it was part of our mission was to remove the curtain, if you will. Yeah, the mystery. Yeah. And, and say like, it's okay to talk about it. And, you, you should enter into it. it. It's okay that you're uncomfortable. It doesn't excuse you not saying anything. I even did like a couple of like classes, like for our staff, like training and how to handle, you know, infertility stuff with couples and mm-hmm. moms. Cause it just felt really strongly. Like we were really hurt by some people, including even people in our own families who just didn't enter into that or say anything to us and just didn't want people to experience the additional pain of that you know, when you're going through your grief. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So that's, I guess the, the story in a nutshell. So your story hasn't ended yet. So you had a son, you had a son. 
and I had then... a son, and then my husband said, while I was still pregnant with my son, when are we going to have a second one? <laughs> <laughs> I said, slow down, cowboy. <laughs> so we had my daughter, um, she'll be two um, this winter, and, and now I'm expecting another baby, so our ninth baby, and things are going good for that. I'm, I'm past mm-hmm. the first trimester, which is, is huge right. for me. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. And we talk about, um, or I talk about our, our, our first six babies with my son and he's kind of intrigued by that. And mm-hmm. he knows that one day when he's with Jesus, that he'll get to meet his brothers and sisters. And he thinks that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. But he says he likes being the older brother here yeah. on earth. <laughs> <laughs> or, what does he say? Here at home, not on earth. <laughs> Yeah, so. every so I've been pretty open with our boys about without about their other siblings, and yeah. every so often, just like unexpectedly, it catches me yeah. off guard. Sometimes Ben will say, "Well, now, but you have babies up in heaven too, right? You have babies that died, kind of like your mom died. You know, you gotta love little kids in there. Just yeah. blunt honesty. Okay, yes, we are going for honesty. This is a good thing. I love it. I know. But that's that's so great that they're still like they're, they're aware and that they're, they're, they're thinking about them. And yeah. that must really, I would say that must really, even if it catches you off guard and it's maybe not said in the most sensitive way, <laughs> it must really bless you, you know, to does. have somebody talk about your babies. Right. When I was, when you were talking about your son, I was thinking about how they're learning about grief before they have to walk through it. Like they're mm-hmm. getting some tools to be able to navigate, not to say it's going to be easy, but they'll be able to hopefully navigate it a little more easily. Oh, I never thought about that. That's yeah. I think that's a good point, Angie. Yeah. I hope so. I hope by having a a mom who likes to cry a lot. (laughs) Who's raw and honest. It's a good thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Is it okay? Is it podcast kosher for me to read a poem that I found in that season of taking a sabbatical that I just think is so beautiful. It's by Martha Snell Nicholson. She was, she's a Christian in the early 20th century and she had like four incurable diseases. She was bedridden for 30 some years of her life. Uh, she, I mean, she died bedridden. So she just had a lot of afflictions and I came across this poem called the thorn and it, well, it just really resonated with me and I think mm-hmm. you'll, I think you'll agree. So um, the thorn. I stood a mendicant of God before his royal throne and begged him for one priceless gift, which I could call my own. I took the gift from out his hand, but as I would depart, I cried, but Lord, this is a thorn and it has pierced my heart. This is a strange, a hurtful gift, which thou hast given me. He said, my child, I give and gave my best to thee. I took it home, and though at first the cruel thorn hurt sore, as long years passed, I learned at last to love it more and more. I learned he never gives a thorn without this added grace. He takes the thorn to pin aside the veil which hides his face. Mm. So that poem means a lot to me because to me just solidifies that, that everything that we do and everything that we experience grief included, is is all for our good and all for his glory. And that's like one thing I know that I hope for people who have read my blog or heard our story, or I guess maybe even somebody who listens to this that maybe doesn't know the Lord, 
or is feeling far from him in their grief is to know like he can and he will use your story if you submit it to him doesn't mean that you have to agree with everything he does and it doesn't mean you have to like it I know I certainly didn't mm-hmm. and it doesn't mean that you can't question it but you can trust that he's good and that the grief that you have been given though painful and hard now is something that he will use to show you more of who he is and as a follower of Jesus like what more could I ask for mm-hmm. but to know more he is on this side of heaven. I just love that poem. I, she's written others, but that one's my my favorite. It's always been my favorite. It's on my blog. Yeah. Um, that so that that suffering that the deep suffering brings about deep intimacy. I mean, I love that the thorn holding the veil back so that you can see his face. Face. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Good stuff there. Thank you so much for agreeing to to be on the podcast and share your story and I really hope that this will I mean my hope for the whole series is that people who are grieving will feel normal and not alone Mm -hmm. and people who are trying to walk along someone who's grieving will feel encouraged to say I'm sorry or you know I'm here I don't know what to say, but I'm here and I'll sit and even just sit and be silent, but that they'll yeah. feel like, I guess, given permission to enter into the grief of whoever it is that they're trying to walk alongside. So, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah that you don't have to have gone through it yourself. Right. You don't need to have any answers. Mm-mm. Just it's that ministry of presence. Like yeah. just, just say something and just sit. And, and let them cry or, or talk. Yeah, that I'm glad you said that. Yeah, I hope that if anybody's listening that maybe is not going through grief themselves, but know somebody that is, that if they haven't said something to them, that they would. Mm-hmm. And it's never too late to. You know, I, I think mm-hmm. people feel like if I don't do it in the first, like, four weeks of something happening, then it's like, I don't want to bring it up. I don't want to right. upset them. Well, it's kind of always on their mind. So yeah. Right. And actually, some, I mean, sometimes I wait to send a sympathy card until a while after because there's a day that they stop yes you probably remember that with your mom huh yeah yeah thank you so much and I'll have your blog posts and all the things that you talked about listed on the show notes too if anyone wants to find them so thank you so much you are so welcome absolutely thank you for having me it was fun (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Retreat House podcast. Any links mentioned in the show can be found in the show notes. We want to thank Isaac Turley for his music at the beginning and end of the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, and we'll see you next week on the Retreat House podcast. Retreat House.